Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 181 being recorded on Thursday, July 25th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, I am super excited. I'm tingly all over tonight. Uh, we have on the show author of Think Like Amazon, John Rossman. Uh, that was published this year. Uh, and as you and the other listeners know, I have started my first consumer-oriented company, and I've made it a uh, core tenant of what we're doing to try to follow as many Amazon principles as, as possible. Stuff like day one, uh, put the customer first, uh, there's a million of them, two pizza teams, uh, etc. And what I have found is this information is exceedingly hard to come at. You have to kind of meet all these ex-Amazonians and pick it out of them and uh, I've actually been able to, on the DL, get a copy of some of the management principle guidelines. Uh, uh, and I can't say where I got them from. So this book is uh, really a welcome addition to my library. Uh, I've actually made everyone in our management team read it. Uh, and it's it's essentially the Bible for operations at my company, Spiffy. So we're real excited to have the author, John, on the show. John, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I feel like we could probably go, I know I could go like three hours on this, so we're going to try to stuff it all in one hour. Uh, so I'll turn it over to Jason and he'll kick us off. Thanks, Scott. And that's a quick you know, warning for listeners that if, uh, if you're exercising while listening to the show, you probably want to turn down the intensity just slightly because it could be a long one. Um, John, first of all, that's a lot of pressure. If uh, Spiffy fails, it sounds like it's going to be your fault. It's all in the implementation, so it's okay. So, <laughs> uh, Well, smart. Well said. Uh, so uh, regular listeners of the show will know we always like to start by getting a little bit of background uh, about our guests and sort of how you, uh, you came uh, to your, your current, current role. So can you uh, talk to us a little bit about your background? Yeah. So um, I was fortunate enough to um, play a senior role at Amazon. I got to launch the marketplace business in 2002, and then I ran the enterprise services business. And when I left Amazon late 2005, started working with my clients on digital strategy and leadership and culture, I started to see the impact of all the principles and mechanisms and things we did at Amazon to get results. And it was actually Several years after that, that I had a client of mine at the Gates Foundation who said, John, you really ought to capture this stuff and write a book. And, um, and so I, I did that. And this book, Think Like Amazon, 50 and a Half Ideas to Become a Digital Leader. You know, one of the things I, I like to point out to people is it really isn't about Amazon. It's about you and what you can take from a company like Amazon and put into your approaches, your habits, your culture. And I love hearing Scott talk about that you know you're using it as an executive team and at worst case even if you don't take the ideas just talking about them as a team will help you be more thoughtful and deliberate about you know what you do believe in and so these are authentic amazon moves and strategies uh, i've used them with my clients uh, since i've left amazon in late 2005 and they really do you know you got to use the right ones at the right time but they they really can help make an impact Nice. And you really had to pay your dues because I'm imagining that when you left in 2005, if you told people that you were doing something based on that's how you did it at Amazon, that wasn't necessarily the instant credibility that it probably is today. You're absolutely right. Like that credibility to some degree came a number of years later. But I think, you know, for me, the craft has always been really, you know, understanding the situation, what the challenge is, and then prescribing little things to do. And if you can lead people to it versus, you know, hitting them over the head, you're always more successful as an advisor. And so it's really been like making them into little chunks and sliding them in and leading people there with good questions. Like that's, that's kind of the art of being a good advisor. Interesting. And, and uh, uh, one of the questions I have for you, so 
So you left in 2005. The book, if I have this right, just got published uh, this year, right? Twenty nine. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but reading through the book, there's a bunch of principles in it that my sense is are relatively current at Amazon. And so the, I'm curious, is that because these principles have been evergreen and, and Jeff and team implemented them in the very beginning and they still carry through today? Or uh, have you done some work to sort of stay current on the, on the Amazon practice? Uh, some of both. So I was at Amazon from early 2002 through late 2005. It was a really interesting time at Amazon because we were getting clear that we were really two types of companies. We were both a platform company that built tools that others would use and we were a retailer and we were building the marketplace business. Um, but I am always testing my understanding, kind of current techniques and approaches with my, my friends and, and former colleagues that are am at Amazon or have just left. And although the company has changed a thousand times since I was there, how they approach their work is unbelievably consistent since I was there. And I think that's really one of the secrets of, of how Amazon has scaled is, is how they approach their work, how they work together, how they hold people accountable, what they believe in, what they prioritize, how they make decisions, how they use metrics. That is consistent across the entire organization. And that lets them scale, uh, uh, scale as they have. Very cool. So uh, with our limited time, we can't go all, all over all 15 and a half principles. So um, we thought we would pick a couple out that uh, were our quote unquote favorites. Uh, and then so that that's going to be kind of one segment that we go through. Um, and then there's there's a bunch of questions that kind of, uh, you know, we, we get a lot as we talk to various retailers and other folks that are kind of trying to live this Amazon lifestyle that'll come up in that part. Um, and then talk about the implications for the industry. Uh, and then finally, you know, how do people take the knowledge that you've captured so well in the book and apply it to their business? Uh, and I know it's going to be hard to fit all those in, but we're going to try to kind of cut it into into some some chunks there. Right on. Um, one of my favorite ones uh, is, and I, I've kind of spent a lot of time working with Amazon, eBay, Google, et cetera. And uh, I'll pick on eBay a little bit and, and I haven't interacted with them in five years in this way, but back in the day in the John Donahoe, Meg world, uh, you would go to eBay and everyone was working on PowerPoints and like all day. And they would essentially, you know, the lowest level people would work on a PowerPoint and they would pass it to their boss and they would pass it up. And, you know, one half of a slide would end up in a Meg Whitman presentation and they just seemed to be spending all their time on PowerPoint. Uh, and then I learned very quickly that Amazon is effectively outline, out, outlawed PowerPoint and the way they run meetings is, is very unique. Uh, give us a rundown of, of that. And what was your reaction when you were first confronted with it? Yeah. So, you know, the general principle or approach is, is that, you know, all important ideas, all root cause analysis, all big projects and proposals are written out. There's, there's a, you know, kind of six page version of that, the six page narrative, and there's a couple of other tools that go along with it. But writing out ideas in, in full paragraphs, full sentences for a specific audience to, for a specific objective has a few different benefits. First of all, it forces the, the author or the people that are authoring the document to get to clarity. And clarity is really both simplicity as well as completeness of thought. And you don't get there with PowerPoint, but writing things out forces that team to make sure that they are actually not talking past each other and, and are agreeing on whatever the important aspects are that you need to convey to your audience. Management meetings, instead of, of having somebody present it, actually start with 15 to 20 minutes of silence where leaders are, have to put their phone away, put their computer away, and actually read and digest. We use the word grok a lot at Amazon, which means to deeply understand, to deeply understand the topic, and then conversation ensues from there. And it, and it forces everybody to to have a better, deeper understanding of what's being discussed and the, and the implications of it. And then the last benefit is it's much easier to forward on to others that need to be connected with the conversation but weren't part of the meeting, right? And one of the great limitations of PowerPoint is that most of the time you still need to have somebody 
along it to actually explain it. And whereas a narrative should be a standalone document. So it is what I consider a, a championship discipline, even if you're only writing things out for yourself, forcing fully written ideas, you'll think through all of the non-obvious situations, issues, risks, things that can go wrong, how to explain it better. You'll think that through so much better. And as a team, I really consider it one of the go slow to go fast moves, which is if you spend more time up front defining what the mission or the project or the program is, you'll be able to make it smaller because you can have better refinement of what your hypotheses are, what you want to test and get down to just the bare metal essentials of what the project is. And, you know, that's the whole minimally viable product and agile mindset. And then you can proceed with it on scale because everybody better understands what it is that we're proposing. Cool. So uh, a couple kind of uh, you know, questions I, I get when I talk about this with other folks, and I've never been in one of these Amazon meetings, so I don't know the answer. So I'm, I'm excited to hear your answer. Uh, so isn't it awkward that you're all just kind of sitting in the meeting reading in, in the first 15 or 30 minutes? Well, it's certainly different, right? And so it's not the, the, the norm of what you expect, but you know, when everybody understands like, you know, this is what we're doing, then, then, and you practice it, you need to practice it both as individuals and as a team, but you'll start to see the impact that it has. And so, yeah, it does seem awkward because it is not the norm, but it's, it's a powerful approach. And yeah, I, I don't, when I work with clients on this, like, I don't, I don't go for, you know, Hey, we have to adopt this across the board, but for important programs, important changes, important strategies, it, it com completely changes the level of comprehension and thoughtful discussion that we have. Cool. So then I've also heard from a lot of my, my Amazonian friends that, um, Jeff, Jeff hosts these regular quarterly business reviews and they're, and they're held in this format. Uh, and then everyone always has a Jeff story. Do you have a good Jeff story from one of these meetings? Oh, sure. You know, and the QBRs tend to be more about, you know, the business results. So they tend to be more metrics driven. Um, the narratives are more about, in, you know, in what's called the OP1 process, the operating plan one process, where you're talking about like what we might do in the future and rationalizing your plan and your resources and big ideas and everything. But um, yeah, one of the, the great um, stories I have is and memories I have is that um, in early 2003, we had launched the apparel category on the marketplace platform for holiday 2002. And we were just working on getting sporting goods out. Uh, out. But uh, we were having an S team meeting. And Jeff asked me, he goes, John, how many merchants have we launched since the holiday? And I started to explain that we essentially had none that we could launch. And he, and, he, and he stopped me. He goes, the answer to that question begins with a number. And so I say six. But, and then he just, he just stands up and he just talks about that that's the most pathetic answer ever. And that I had allowed uh, kind of the hard, th the easy things in the business to become hard things in the business and da, 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 da. But it really was just a message to me and to everyone that, Although my job was director of merchant integration, he wanted me to act and think like I ran the entire marketplace business. So if there were bottlenecks or slowdowns or, or other functions in Amazon or outside of Amazon that were slowing us down in launching tens of thousands of merchants, don't pay attention to my job title, like work the entire system, take accountability for the entire end-to-end -end process. And so, so that's really what I took from, from that great moment, but it, it was, it was high. Commitment. I'm not sure great moment is exactly how I'd characterize that. <laughs> yeah. You know, those are, those are priceless though. Right. And, you know, one of the things I took away from that is like, you know, how, how answering direct questions directly is a really subtle but important skill in working with senior people and ever since then you know and I've, I've i was a partner in a big consulting firm and worked with a lot of consultants and it's like this hey this habit of answering a question directly and then if somebody wants more explanation they will ask you to double click into it and everything right but don't make it fish for an answer when it's a fairly straightforward question 
Yep. Uh, when when Jeff does single you out, uh, do coworkers tend to have some empathy? Oh, I, I think everybody just understands the 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 kind of the game, and that it's typically not about you. It's about just making sure that the entire organization isn't becoming complacent or is paying attention to detail or is, you know, really living up to the values of the enterprise and stuff. So I, I, I don't, I, I never tip it, you know, too personally. And I, I, I don't think. Good. Uh, so uh, side note, um, you know, I work for a big, big agency. So a, we, we use an awful lot of PowerPoint and, uh, these days, all our clients want Amazon expertise. So we, I have a lot of ex-Amazonians on my team. And um, being familiar with this principle, I was super excited that I'd hire all these ex-Amazonians and they'd be really thoughtful, great writers of narratives. Um, and it hasn't really worked out that way. What I mostly get are people that do really bad PowerPoint because they've had this repressed desire to make slides. in uh, and so as, as you say that and think about that, what do you, what do you kind of take from that? Is it, is it because it, it doesn't work or, you know, what I take from that is kind of like, yeah, this is a hard thing to do, right? It, it, it does take an immense amount of effort and I think people can wear out on it. Um, but, you know, in the oh, right dose for yeah. the right moment, I have found it powerful, but, you know, I'd be interested in what, like what you, yeah. what do you take away from that? fact-based observation. Yeah. Well, I was mostly joking, but I do, uh, I mean, in seriousness, I, I do think the answer is somewhere in between. I, I'm utterly convinced that the narrative approach and along with that, the press release, which is kind of the, visualize the outcome, um, at the beginning of the process, I feel like that is a, an excellent thoughtful way, uh, to approach particular types of meetings like that, that OP1, meeting that you're describing. Um, and you know what I do sometimes do with our clients is um, as a team, we'll write the narrative, but then we end up turning it into PowerPoint because that's just what management is used to and everything. Yep. What our ability to succinctly communicate is so much better because we've hashed through writing out the narrative. So I, I've I've done all sorts of kind of hybrid versions of this for, for sure, um, but and I, I guess I would say like I think there actually is a value in a very well crafted, well delivered presentation. It's it's to solve an entirely different problem. Like it's not to facilitate a meeting, um, but or, you know, or, to, or to deeply explain. Sometimes you know what can be a fairly complex idea in a consistent, scalable way, right? Yep. And, uh, but so, yeah, so sometimes to evangelize something like after those decisions have been made um, or, you know, to communicate to a very broad audience or things like that, you know, visual communications can, can be quite effective. So I feel like they're both good, good tools for the right problem. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's an awful lot of misuse of both of those tools and, and, you know, when they're misused, they're a disaster. It, which to some degree, I would caveat all of these ideas, which is that you need to be used with wisdom, right? The, the right, the right idea, the right approach for the right circumstance that is contextualized into what's going to work in your organization. And so they can't be used blindly. Um, and so I would, I would, you know, kind of take this discussion about narratives and how to use them appropriately and, and caveat all of these ideas with that. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to the next idea we wanted to talk about, uh, this is one that, that comes up a lot is uh, the two pizza team approach. So um, I, I'm going to actually let you describe it and, and uh, tell us uh, a little yes. about that. So, so a two pizza team is a specific type of team at Amazon that owns a service or a core capability, right? So this could be the type of service that, that you see on the website. So it could be like the promotion service or the image service, but it can also be a core back office function like the inventory receive process or the item forecasting process, right? It is a capability that you truly need to be great at. And a two pizza team is a small team Ideally, a team no larger than 10. The ideal two pizza team is actually a team of one that owns the service in entirety. And, and that team owns the, the, 
product definition, product management, engineering, operations of that service. And their goal is to drive adoption of that capability both inside of Amazon and, and sometimes, oftentimes, external Amazon. So Amazon is, is continually breaking down their business into these little Lego blocks, this service-oriented um, organization concept. And it's a two-pizza team that owns a core capability and is expected to operate it at a world-class level and innovate it on a consistent basis going forward over a long period of time. Gotcha. And that metaphor is uh, no more people than could be fed by two pizzas. That's right. Yeah. So it's a team no bigger than 10, which is yep. essentially what two pizzas can feed, right? Yeah. It is It is a cross-functional team. Oftentimes it's got a heavy kind of software or engineering bent, but but sometimes a lot of you know business participation could have legal participation um, in it, but it, but it's a, it is a a a f- ideally a fairly independent operating team. Yeah, and I, and that is a key component of it, right? Is that it's uh, they uh, they they've relatively constrained their dependencies outside of that team. So the, I I almost. Yeah make it akin to sort of like object-oriented programming where... That's right. And so it's instead of a service-oriented architecture, you have a service-oriented organization to complement that architecture, which is what object-oriented development is is all about. That's exactly the point. Exactly. Scott, Scott and I actually tried to implement two pizza teams for the podcast, and we found that the pizzas would only feed Scott and I. So we've had to stick with a two-man thing. Well, that's the ideal two pizza teams, small, small independent team. Yeah, what we like to call the dream team. <laughs> well, what, one uh, one question I have on that is, right, so you've got this team of 10 people, they're cross-functional. How Do you use kind of like the old school language of a matrix organization? So is is the, uh, I'll pick on the, you know, maybe this team has like a lawyer or a finance person. Is that person like reporting to the team lead there or are they essentially over in the corporate legal admin structure and they're just kind of like sitting on the team? And then how do they, how the problem with the matrix organization is you have two bosses and you, you know, you very quickly get your, it's very easy to get misaligned on those. How, how does, how does the two pizza thing work in, in those situations? Yeah. So you can have a mix of both. So, uh, the pure two pizza team is fully dedicated to that service and that mission and, and that capability. Sometimes um, that could have a fully dedicated uh, legal or maybe business development person. Finance is always matrix in because the, the goal of finance at Amazon is actually very strategic. It really is meant to be an independent party, both supporting and validating um, the opinions and decisions and financial analysis that goes along. And so you, so you want to have a degree of independence there. But I think one of the, the ideas that goes along with um, these support teams is support teams, and it's actually idea number 12 in the book, which is called Get to Yes, Finance, Tax, Legal, and HR Teams That Matter. And, you know, so many experts um, at most organizations what they're really good at is pointing out all the reasons why you can't get something done, right? You're always pointing this game like, well, what if I did this? What if I did that? How would I do this? How would I do this? And basically, those experts just kind of get good at saying no. Finance teams at Amazon are more oriented, and their mandate is really help you get to yes. And, and that might sound like a subtle uh, mindship move, but it makes all the difference when when they feel and act like an owner and an owner to helping this new concept, this business challenge solved, their job is to help their business partner get to yes. So most of the time, key functions like tax, legal, finance are matrixed into the organization, but the mindset is they they are a business partner and the mission is to get to yes. So, so then... Uh... You know, when you when you have all these things like the finance team's helping me get to yes, uh, disagree and commit and all that, when do you ever say no to something? Like, and then who says it? Well, when when uh, when the when the data and when the customer experience, you know, kind of justifies saying to no, and and you know, a big part of strategy is is saying no. And I think Amazon uh, does a very disciplined job of thoroughly thinking through something, but then saying no, right? 
sometimes that's simply constraint-based, right? We only have the resources, the capability to do these two things. We have five things in front of us. We have to rationalize which ones we do or what order we do. I don't think any of this compromises saying no. In fact, I think in some ways it helps you be much more deliberate about what you're saying no to and what you're saying yes to. And then when you say yes to something, everybody's on board with that. And we aren't having a bunch of leakage or kind of shadow projects going on where, you know, we didn't really say no to it. So we'll kind of try to sneak it in like that is not in general, but the, the approach at Amazon, like they're very clear. And that's a big part of, you know, I reference it, the, the OP1 process is bringing forward all these narratives, all these ideas, all the things we could do, and then ruthlessly selecting the select few that we can afford to do and committing to them wholeheartedly. And I think that's one of the ideas, reasons why Amazon actually extremely well, both in their operations, but in releasing new capabilities, they do it much faster and much better than most large organizations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the ways I've heard Jeff describe it that, that I thought was pretty interesting was, and he talks about traditional enterprises and like any one single um, senior stakeholder can kill an idea and that idea just, you know, dies on the vine right there. And he talked about wanting Amazon to almost be more like the venture capital community where, you know, you, you can pitch the idea to a lot of senior stakeholders and you just need to get one sponsor to say yes, you know, that allows you to uh, sort of get that initial funding and, and be able to, uh, you know, take a project far enough to know, to learn whether it's going to work or not. Yeah, and, and I think one of the powers of this approach is the ability to think big, but you got to bet small, right? And so how to, how then with a big big concept like, yep, we don't fully understand. We don't know if it's going to work. We call that thing a bet. Maybe not everybody is bought into it, but together we go, hey, whoever the decision maker is, they're saying yes, we wholeheartedly buy into it. But then how do we proceed on it with as little risk and as much learning as possible, right? And and we all talk about this, you know, kind of fail fast mentality. And really what we mean by that type of failure is the scientific and disciplined testing process, right? That's the type of failure we're talking about is learning, not true failure, like failure of execution. And so having that discipline of, of having a big vision, but then making the project as small as possible, test, learn, adjust, do we proceed? Do we not proceed? How do we just next step? We do that. Like that is the complete agile manifesto right there. Cool. So, so moving on uh, idea four, and and this kind of permeates all of Amazon and it's in, in multiple ideas, but you know, kind of the, the customer obsession, starting with the customer working backwards um, during your time frame. there, what's a, an example you saw that, that really kind of a, a, in, in, in illustrated that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and Scott, this is a business you probably know a lot better than I do actually at this point, which is the marketplace business. So when we were launching the marketplace business, uh, we were launching it uh, in the fall of 2002, we were launching in the apparel category. We, we were, you know, we were nobody in this category. Right. Um, And so we were pursuing several big, meaningful brands. And what most brands wanted was for us to pass the customer credit card to them and they would process the credit card um, instead of Amazon processing the, the order and the charge and then the, just passing forward the, the order confirmation commitments onto the client. And we felt like it was essential to the customer experience and to the customer trust that Amazon be the only party that actually had the confidential you know, payment information that we didn't pass up forward. We had to make some really tough decisions. We passed on several really important brands in our in our apparel launch to commit to you know this type of customer experience and customer trust we wanted. So, me like when you're willing to walk away from from dollars in order to stick to your principles, that's when you're really living. I think that was a, a clear example to me where where our understanding of our brand and customer trust really led us into what I think was a really pivotal moment. And I think, I think over a long period of time, one of the essential strategies for why the marketplace has worked. 
Yeah, one of the an interesting case study is Amazon had not I don't know if they had to acquire them, but they acquired Zappos because Zappos was even more obsessed around the customer than Amazon uh, with the you know specifically the shoes the the you know in unlimited returns three sixty five and all that. Um, but is there a point where you can take it too far? So so this is one oh, thing no. that. Yeah, for, for, for sure. Absolutely. And and the one thing I point out, it's like customer obsession. It's the first of 14 leadership principles, but it is just one of 14. Right. And so, again, it comes back to this, you know, you have to use all of these concepts with wisdom and you can over index on any one of them at any point. And it's it's kind of like metrics. Right. You always have to have a balanced scorecard with your metrics. Well, it's the same thing with how you approach things. And so um, customer obsession is really what gives Amazon and gives others the permission to do really hard things and to understand thy customer extremely well. That's really the primary uh, goal of it. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to be extremely mindful of the financial implications or the operating considerations or other aspects. And so it's, it's really these, these principles and these approaches are best when you're using them, a couple of them all at one time and where they're pulling on each other and that force forces you into a completely new insight or observation, not over-indexing on any one of them. So it can absolutely lead you to bad places if that's the only tool you use. Does Amazon give any guidelines for balancing the principles? You know, that's a great question. I haven't seen any um um, I think actually one of the principles kind of lends itself to this macro perspective, which is um, principle number four, which is leaders are right a lot, right? And that that kind of says like basically you have to have extremely good judgment. Judgment, you know, which of these which of these things to use at the right time and the right dose. Cool. Another question I've, um, this is one that's been frustrating to get information on is I've heard several people say that every customer at Amazon has this, this kind of metric. Um, I've heard it called sugar. Um, and you know, there's when the customer service rep on the other line is talking to Jason, he has like a sugar level of a million because he gets like 10 packages a day. So, so they, that gives them a fair amount of flexibility in, you know, replacing a device or something like that. But, you know, there is a customer that can have a very low or even like a negative sugar rating. And then the customers, this customer service reps know to kind of, this is kind of a, a perennial return abuser or, you know, um, you know, someone that for whatever the algorithm is, is looking at is, is not a, not a, premium customer and then the customer service rep has has kind of a, a different set of, of kind of they can box that customer in more tightly is have you heard anything about that i i haven't heard of the of it being called the sh- the sugar metric or the sugar index that's a a, a great concept I, i'm going to check in with some amazon people but no doubt amazon has uh deep customer segmentation and they do different things for different uh, customer segments. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm, you know, a, a top tier prime customer, you know, and everything, right. Amazon, when I go to return a package, you know, the commitment they make is when it's received at the fulfillment center and they inspect it, they'll issue the credit. The second I check in my packages at UPS, the credit is restored to me. Right. And so they obviously like, you know, this actually helps promotes John, uh, buying more instead of buying less. And so we are going to accelerate uh, the returns process and, and and refunding his funds to him and everything, right? And so that's obviously done on a, a customer segmentation basis. Uh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I wanted to pivot just slightly. There's often uh, when we talk about these these principles with, with folks, they they have some perceived reason why that principle won't work outside of Amazon or in their particular case. So I, I hear these like common objections over and over again. So, so one of the, the principles you have in the book, I think it's principle 43 is the, the bar raiser program. And we, we've actually been lucky enough to have a couple bar raisers on the show. Um, when we talk about, you know, the, you know, net net Amazon has a super rigorous hiring program. <laughs> um, other clients or other retailers are, are fearful that having that rigorous of a program, like don't you eventually like make it impossible for, uh, for you to be able to recruit and be able to hire new people. And don't you end up with this 
dichotomy where you have people with uh, tenure and seniority, you know, and then you have like the most rigorously hired talented people came later kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that kind of um, consideration is, is, is very real. And the, the story I tell in that particular idea is really, if I reflect back on my career, the biggest mistakes I've made have been when I'm hiring in a hurry, right? I've got a job, I've got a project, I've got something I need to get done. I've got a candidate that fits the bill. But maybe that person, like, they, they don't have either the right, you know, kind of organizational alignment. Uh, maybe there's limitations, like, I think they could do this type of project, but that's the only type of thing they could do, right? They're not fungible. They can't do a bunch of other stuff. They won't progress with the organization. But still, you move on it because you're hiring in a hurry. And so the Bar Raiser program, one of the benefits of the Bar Raiser program is it's an independent party from, you know, whoever the hiring team and the hiring manager is. They don't have that sense of urgency that oftentimes the hiring team has because, like, God, we got to get this person in here fast. So they don't become as compromised or as conflicted typically as the hiring team does. And so whether you, and, th- and this is kind of how I wrap up the idea, which is, you know, however you go about it, Amazon's approach is a bar raiser approach. However you do it, think about how do you avoid hiring in a hurry and, and your worst types of hiring mistakes, which are hiring for short-term results versus a long-term career, because those are oftentimes the hardest mistakes, the most expensive mistakes um, that you live with in the business for a long period of time. And that's really the spirit of the bar raiser program at Amazon, which is which is hiring not just for the job of today, but for the jobs of tomorrow and people and a team that can progress with how we have to progress the work. Yeah, yeah. There's a professor at Warden that uh, Adam Grant that does a lot of research in in sort of organizational um, management, and he has this great saying: uh, as important as it is to have the right team members on your bus, it's even more important to avoid getting the wrong team members on your bus. Yeah, I I agree. You know, one of the things, you know, that I always think about culture and everything is everybody thinks that culture is, is this attribute or this essence that attracts and keeps um, people and keeps talent. One of the aspects of culture is it should also repel the wrong type of talent, right? And we don't think about that aspect of it's fine if the person is qualified, but isn't the right environment for them. It's not our job to make a place the right situation for everybody, right? And I think that that's something that Amazon is 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 very, I would say, kind of thoughtful and proud of. Is is like it's not for everybody. Amazon is not the right place for for every great capable person. It's the, it's the type of environment for people who align with how they see the world and how they see leadership. And, and that's, I think, key for teams is they, they sometimes get mistaken that, you know, we should be a great place for anybody. And that's not true. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, that's a, a difficult self-realization to make sometimes though. Um, I wanted to, to talk about another one, uh, an objection I hear a lot. Uh, so rule 18 um, in your book is, uh, about the advantages of a platform. Um, and, uh, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, reasons that, that a platform can be a huge advantage. Uh, but when you talk about that with a lot of other retailers, like the, the challenge is they, they lack vision and imagination around what their permission to be a platform is, because it's probably not prime, for example, or it might not be a marketplace. So like, you know, do do you believe that every retail entity has a an opportunity in a? Uh... I, I, I I I don't. Um, and so you know what I outline in the chapter, and, and this is the type of topic I've I've worked with lots of teams on is it's not everybody's strategy to be a platform uh, company, but the exercise every team can do and help make themselves better is ask yourself. What are my core capabilities? How would I make those independent, self-service, feature-rich, cost-competitive, highly available capabilities that people outside my organization could use? What would it take to do that? And whether it's the right strategy to proceed on them or not, you will still come up with great ideas to improve and operate and architect 
better today, even if not if being a platform company is the right thing. So in no way, um, and I'll go back again, like in no way am I prescribing that any or all of these ideas are the right things uh, it, for anybody. But but you do have to ask yourself, like, well, you know, if I'm not a platform, what am I? And how would I make myself good enough to be a platform company? And that's that's really the lesson that I'm trying to give in uh, in that particular idea. Awesome. So hopefully that gives listeners a flavor of the ideas. I think we hit on maybe, you know, five to 10 in there. So, so really, you know, less than 10% of the ground you cover. And uh, so hopefully that illustrates how valuable the, the, the concepts are in the book. Um, we want to move over to the, what does it mean kind of area? So, so I, I frequently, I do kind of an Amazon stump speech. And then I, you know, one of the first questions I always get is, you know, uh, once people realize that you should count GMV in the marketplace and not revenue, and therefore Amazon's twice as big as people think that it is and all, all that good stuff. Um, usually one of the first questions I get is, you know, Oh crap. Are, are, are we essentially all roadkill? Is Amazon essentially unstoppable? Um, what's your answer to that? That, that must be a big part of your consulting. Well, you know, I, um, it's a, it's a big question. I think, especially within retail, I think that that, that is a challenging question, but, but the, the answer is, is what a lack of imagination. If that's the, if that's the, uh, the, the conclusion anybody comes from, I think that anytime you, you are passionate about your customer and you're thinking about how you can serve some unique needs, there's, there's opportunities to, to innovate. And I don't think Amazon has the lock on any of that in particular, you know, Amazon is now kind of the, from a retail standpoint, it's just the ubiquity uh, provider. But what so many people want is they want uniqueness and they want service and they want experience and they want personalization. All of those things don't necessarily align with who Amazon is as, as, a, as a retailer. And so I think that there's a ton of examples of brands that are winning out there sometimes on the amazon platform oftentimes off the amazon platform that uh i i, I mean i only come away with more optimism uh when thinking about how to compete with amazon the less optimism. yeah uh and i i mean i think there was a an era when everyone was asking themselves if uh woolworth's was unstoppable or sears was unstoppable or walmart was un- and, yeah, exactly yeah exactly yeah, I, I, Jeff had a pretty funny quote once. Um, like, no, no empire successfully predicts uh, its own demise. Right. Um, but I sure would like uh, my empire to outlive me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, which I feel like is a good goal. Uh, so, you know what I'm curious about, and I know this happened sort of after your tenure there, but you've obviously been following them closely. Uh, the um, Whole Foods acquisition, and uh, I spend a lot of time in the the grocery space. And obviously that, uh, that, that acquisition really caused a lot of people to sort of, you know, rethink their digital strategies and sit up and take notice. But, you know, now that it's, it's several years past there, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, diverging opinions about how Amazon's doing in grocery and, and sort of what the future holds. What, uh, do, do you have a POV on Amazon and grocery? Well, I, I think I, I, I have a, some opinions both on, on, Amazon and retail store presence, as well as like what could any leader from any industry kind of take from it. So, you know, the, the first thing I'd say is um, I think Whole Foods is just, you know, an experiment uh, for Amazon. It's a great business. It's a great brand just by itself. But then you start thinking about, you know, the roughly, what is it, 480 Whole Foods stores that there are in the U.S. What that point of presence starts meaning for Amazon and its customers in being to either, you know, shop, pick up in store, drop off other types of, of categories that can leverage that physical store presence like pharmacy or something like that. And so I think it, it just feeds into the flywheel and gives Amazon a nice, starting base for experimentation in, in truly how to better serve their customer, not just in grocery, but in other capabilities also. So you start combining kind of the capabilities and presence of Whole Foods with an acquisition like PillPack, 
and you can start kind of connecting the dots forward on, on where Amazon could go. But the underlying uh, thing that any leader in any industry can take from this is oftentimes the strategies that have been successful for us in the past are the strategies that limit us going forward. When I was at Amazon, we were so proud and committed that we were just an e-commerce retailer and that that was such an inherent and natural advantage business model. We could never see a world where we would want physical store presence. Well, Amazon was obviously willing, even well before the Whole Foods acquisition, to rethink and challenge their own strategy. And so one of the, the ideas in the book is idea 21, which is called Never Say Never. Don't let past positions create a trap. And the, and the lesson to learn from that is be very careful about letting your past strategies, especially those that have made you successful, be the things that lead you to going forward. Cool. What, what do you think? Uh, I'll ask you to pontificate a little bit. Um, you know, there's, you, you mentioned pill pack. That's kind of a little, little signal that Amazon's interested in the pharmacy. They've got their healthcare partnership. Um, they're constantly uh, kind of poking around travel services, FinTech. Uh, some people even think they're going to go after the Facebook crypto kind of thing. What, do you, do you have a prediction on kind of some of the next big verticals Amazon's going to go into? Well, I, I, and I don't think any of this is going to be uh, groundbreaking news, but I, I think the area of logistics continues to be and will always be a big category of innovation and scale for Amazon. And so whether it's backhaul logistics, last mile logistics, um, all sorts of different issues, just think about like in the past month, the things I've heard that are interesting relative to you know, essentially last mile logistics capability. So I've heard a lot about delivery to garage. I've heard a lot about delivery to trunk. Uh, Kohl's and Amazon announced a partnership that allow a customer return any Amazon order without packaging to a Kohl's store to have it returned. They continue to do a lot of things in supply chain and logistics. Um, and And those are oftentimes services that other people can leverage. And so I think that logistics is going to continue to be, as it has been for the past 25 years, a continued big bet for Amazon. I do think that healthcare is um, going to be their next business. And it's going to come from lots of different strategies, right? It's going to come from, uh, you know, the, you talked about the partnership with J.P. Morgan Chase, Berkshire Hathaway, it's called Haven. I think first and foremost, that's going to serve the, I think it's about 1.3 million employees that those three companies represent. No employer, no no patient, no doctor is happy with the status quo. And I, I think it really is going to take some external heavyweights like that to, to create examples of how change can happen. And Amazon's going to um, employ their their pretty predictable playbook of create better transparency, give customers more choice, make it more real time, uh, and 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 truly serve the inherent needs of the customer. So maybe focus a little bit more on preventive um, aspects than just reactive uh, basic calls, right? Like what a great playbook to apply into healthcare. So I think that that's going to be a big, a big one. And and the one I'm really interested in, and again, no big great shock, is just internationally, how will the Amazon um, retail business um, continue to scale? Well, given all the success that Amazon has had in North America, I think it's, it's they're still figuring things out on on an international basis. And I think that there's so much more growth and and healthy competition in all the international markets. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Amazon creates market-specific, appropriate, you know, experiences and businesses that really fit markets and and start to mirror the type of success that Amazon has had. Yeah, and, uh, and, and and that doesn't even touch, you know, what AWS will do and what the devices businesses will do and what the content businesses will do and stuff like that. Those are all all crazy and continue to be um, uh, areas of growth. Yeah, no, it's 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 going to be super interesting to watch. I feel like one of the 
the challenges they have with new categories is as they get so much bigger, like they, they really only can make bets that are going to have a meaningful payoff. And so like in some ways that feels like the biggest constraint on, on what verticals they go after is they're just, they're just some verticals that are just potentially intrinsically too small to be a new bet for Amazon. Yeah. I, 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 I both agree with you, but I could point out things like, you know, Jeff was always interested in having the world's biggest catalog of items, whether they were really selling or not. So, so I don't know if you remember, but you know, Amazon has this category called small scientific um, and instruments, right? We called it Squiss uh, when I was at Amazon. And it was like about beakers and little scientific tools and, and things like that. Like he just always saw it as a competitive asset, a moat have an authoritative catalog on if he could every item in the world and so i don't think that um i think they they need both they need both things that are big and can move pretty quickly but they can place really long really small bets and see how those things how those things um materialize over time yeah no no no, for sure that it is funny um i get a little bit of a sense uh that you know, there are all these principles in Amazon that are practiced all the time, but like the one sort of wrinkle in some of these principles are like, if Jeff has conviction about something, like, you know, he'll, he'll occasionally push it through regardless of the, the normal Amazon process is that. Which, which, which is really the prerogative of, of management and the types of insights that you wish you saw from senior management in other companies, which is instead of being this consensus driven leader and filtering what everybody's saying, like, well, I guess we're, we all think this is a good idea. So let's do it. Instead, have your own point of view and have an insight about where the market is going, where your customers are going and whether anybody agrees with you or not going for it. And um, I've gotten to, to work with, with uh, leaders who have that type of internal conviction and insight, and they're always willing to be challenged have, and they encourage alternate points of of view. They don't want, they want to try to avoid confirmation bias. But when, at the end of the day, when they believe in something, they believe in something and, and, and they are going to commit the organization to doing something about it. But typically, not always, typically at Amazon, those things tend to be, you know, fairly bite-sized in terms of, of the commitment level. And so they can really allow it to take time and to figure it out. Like, I think the Amazon Go store is a good example of that where, you know, my guess is nobody on the finance team was saying this was a good idea, but Jeff and some other leaders probably like, you know, this is a really interesting customer experience. Let's do it. And they've kept it pretty small since then. They are obviously still figuring some things out about that business, but you know, they're going to stick with it. You're not going to see them uh, shut that down. I don't think anytime quickly, you may not see them scale it. Yeah, no, I, in fact, I think there's some rumors that we might see a new permeation, permutation in the near future. What, what's, what's the rumor? Uh, well, so there's a, <laughs> when the, the Go team was first launched, they actually took a 10,000 square foot lease in Seattle in a neighborhood. Um, and, and what we now have heard is that the original Go concept was intended to be a full grocery store with a butcher and yeah, it, it, there's been there's been some reporting that Amazon's going to launch a new grocery brand, and I and I, and I also believe that they're going to take the right aspects of Amazon Go and adopt it over time into Whole Foods, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, uh, I I do think they are going to be experimenting with some different store formats and some different categories, and grocery is a really important category for them over, over the long period of time. So they are just getting going. That grocery is one of those ones that, that has scale and it has so much wallet share that if you're, you know, you're really trying to be customer centric and you're not. And Amazon grocery. loves everyday transactions, right? And so they, 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 and they are willing to lose on that type of category business because they understand the customer lifetime value of a customer, right? And I think that's, you know, back to like, what are the things we can take from Amazon? And it's really about customer lifetime value versus versus trying to optimize on a, on an item or order economics. Amazon is the most 
item and order economic aware organization I've ever been around, but they are clear that they are trying to optimize for the customer lifetime value. And so that lets them invest on one item, on one category, on one order, because they're trying to win the customer over the long period of time. For sure. Uh, a fun anecdote on that that store, I guess they took a lease eight years ago when they thought they were going to open a grocery store. And uh, at some point during the Go development, they pivoted to the convenience store model, which are much smaller. Um, so that store, that 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 real estate has sat empty. And apparently the neighbors in that neighborhood are have been somewhat peeved because that was going to be their neighborhood grocery store. Um, and so they're now excited that it, it appears to be an active construction site again. And so that, you know, that's what everyone's waiting to, to see them peel the paper off those windows and see what's behind that store. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do sort of agree with you on, on some of the other categories. Uh, longtime listeners of the show will know Scott, you know, has been beating the drum for a long time that, that logistics is something that Amazon probably productizes and weaponizes. And I would just note in that regard that this week, uh, or maybe last week, uh, FedEx, uh, um, in their, in their, uh, uh, 10 K they, they listed Amazon as a competitor for the first time, which is kind of funny because every, every year prior to this, they've been denying that Amazon competes with them in any way. And I think, I think if you the other thing to be you know mindful of, and this isn't over a short period of time, but I think um, you know personalization, on-demand manufacturing, three-day printing, um, all of those capabilities across retail categories is something that Amazon's very interested in. And so, if you read some of their patents, you can see some of the the areas of interest they have in um, on-demand. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue uh, for people that have uh, listened through the whole whole show. We'll get to the the big money question now. Um, so Amazon issues a press release tomorrow and announces that they're coming into your space. So maybe you were a retailer in Australia, and you know when Amazon expanded there, or maybe maybe you're FedEx, or maybe you're a, a a chain of pharmacies or something. Like what what is your advice, John, to someone that that you know is suddenly being confronted by the juggernaut? Well, if you, if you're if you're waiting until that moment, then uh, then you've you've limited your options, right? And so the best advice is act as if, right? Act as if that has actually happened. What would you do if Amazon uh, didn't have that announcement or or the threat came? Do those things before they actually happen. And so that that's the best advice is act as if, right? Because when it does actually happen. You've really limited. Uh, you've really limited your options. But you know, if that is the case, and you know, and everything, it's like, I, like, are you know, double down on who's your customer, obsessing about their experience, how to you know drive out cycle time, improve costs, lower quality, and then how do you serve your customers, your existing customers, in, in broader and deeper moments, right? Like, you know, the best the best defense is a good offense. You got to go on the offense in those moments. Cool. One of the trends we talk a lot about on the show is uh, so retail kind of traditional retail is, is really struggling. Um, brands are going direct either, either kind of you know, larger brands that have been around for a while, or there's this new kind of brand that's being born. Uh, this the digital native vertical brand. Uh, there's Bonobos and Warby are kind of the examples. And now I have a slide I show that there's like 8,000 of these in every category. Um, what do you think that, that strategy puts risk to Amazon that, you know, if all these brands are going direct to the consumer, then do you need an aggregator like Amazon? Um, I, I think like most things, it, it's, it's some of all of that. I think that it's an opportunity for Amazon because Amazon is the great aggregator of customers, customer trust. Not everybody wants, you know, everybody wants a hundred brands, but you don't want your credit card at a hundred different places. Um, and everything. And so I think it presents um, uh, opportunity for Amazon. It also is a beacon for Amazon as to, you know, what sort of new capabilities um, are customers hungry for. And so they can pivot to that. But I also think it, it, it is, you know, back to the like, what a great opportunity, what a great time this is, um, because you can innovate, you can, um, you know, do all these things and you can trial and you can scale so much faster and so much cheaper than you used to be um, able to do. And so I think, it, it, you know, I, I, I think traditional retail is struggling, but 
retail, I think, is going through an amazing uh, birth. But anytime, like, you know, that's what disruption's about, right? There's there's new winners and there's new losers. And I think that's definitely what you're seeing right now. Awesome. So uh, final question. So uh, obviously, I strongly recommend people, everyone go out and get the book. Um, it is also on Audible. So if you prefer, uh, you're obviously listening to this podcast. If you prefer to listen to the book, um, it's on Audible. Did Did you do the reading or was that a... a I read a, I read the introduction and then uh, actually somebody who's, who read my other books uh, read the rest of the book. Okay. Yeah. I thought uh, it's the one time I actually did the the option where you can kind of like, uh, you know, read on Kindle and type audible. So uh, it was, it was, it was, it was cool to be able to kind of digest it more rapidly that way. Uh, so strongly recommend that. But if, if folks want to find you online, do you, are you a pun, regular pontificator on with the tweets or are you over on LinkedIn? What's the best uh, way to find it? I, I, I am on LinkedIn, John Rossman, or my, my blog, my website is rossmanpartners.com. And I, I, I get so many great questions every week, whether it's people at Amazon interviewing at Amazon, meeting with Amazon, uh, whatever it is. And, and I love um, ha- asking, having people ask me like, hey, what did you mean by this? Or, you know, give me an example. And so there's always stuff we can build on there. Great. Well, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, answer our burning questions from the book. Cool. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks very much for being on the show, John. And for our listeners, if uh, we didn't get to a question that, that was uh, burning in your mind or you have a follow-up question, we certainly encourage you to continue the dialogue on uh, Twitter or our Facebook page. As always, if this was the episode that that you know is really going to add value in your day job, we'd love it if you jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, we've been watching and waiting. We see your mouse hovering over it, and uh, this would be a perfect time to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we'll look forward to reading all those reviews. So until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 